Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. The Banking Royal Commission put the financial sector on trial and exposed its self-interest, corruption and excess. In this session, recorded at the 2019 festival, finance journalist Michael Rodden asks what's next for Australians and our banks. Your host is Justin O'Brien. Good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for coming uh, on, on, a, on a bright uh, uh, Sunday morning when we perhaps all should be out uh, marathon running. Uh, certainly, Michael here has uh, completed his own marathon um, in getting in double quick time, basically, the first book, uh, full-length treatment on the Hain Royal Commission. Uh, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Michael uh, to Newcastle Writers Festival. Uh, for my sins, I am a regulatory theorist, I'm a corporate lawyer, I'm a political scientist, uh, and um, I have covered the global financial crisis basically since 2007. I've amassed more air miles and status points in hotels than I care to uh, remember and, and spent more time in courtrooms than I care to remember. Um, it's something that I guess, Michael, uh, you have spent the last 18 months basically doing. Uh, how did you find it? Yeah, well, if everyone can hear me coming through, um, I got to know uh, quite a number of courtrooms around Australia, um, and they're all different in their own ways, but uh, Supreme Court of Darwin has to take the cake. Um, gorgeous old building. Um, but yeah, it was um, sitting up the back room, being largely ignored by uh, lawyers and, you know, sort of financial service spivs for, for the last year. But um, it, was, it was a great experience in actually just getting around to uh, each sort of, you know, there was one in Melbourne, there was one in Sydney, and there was one in Darwin. Um, and all to give it, you know, the, the idea was they'll give a different flavour um, where they were, you know, Sydney was for the, for the sort of the chairman and the executives, the high levels. Um, Darwin, they went to investigate sort of um, regional treatment of, you know, financial service treatment of uh, Aboriginal uh, Torres Strait Islanders, uh, and there was Brisbane as well, where they looked into sort of agricultural farming loans and, um, you know, tipping, pushing farmers off their land and things like that. So there was sort of like this, you know, theatrical aspect to it, um, and it was, you know, it was quite the experience to sort of follow it around the country. It was the first time I'd really been on tour <laughs> for work. Uh, I suppose it's important to, to highlight, I guess, from the very beginning, the distinctive nature of a royal commission and how it differs from basically a, a court process because uh, it's not there to basically pass judgment, it's there to make recommendations. Um, but maybe we could begin by um, drawing some pen portraits of the main characters. Well, let's start with Kenneth Hayne himself. Yeah, he's, um, I, I grew to really like Ken Hayne over the um, over the course of the year, um, he's a really sort of phenomenal man. Um, you know, extremely well uh, qualified to do this work. You know, uh, a long-serving High Court justice. Um, before that, um, you know, a very successful lawyer, um, and had sort of you know run the University of Melbourne when he was there before going to Oxford. Um, but you, you spend a lot of time with these sort of high-powered lawyers. They don't give much away when they're on the stand. Obviously, they're asking questions of other people. Um, but there's a lot of wit that comes through with Hayne. And you know, sometimes he'll be 
lazing back in his chair. People won't think he's uh, actually paying attention to proceedings. He'll be staring at the roof. Uh, he'll be swiping on his iPad. Um, and then just out of the corner, uh, he'll, he'll interrupt proceedings um, and then ask a really probing question of someone who's been dithering for the last 20 minutes. And he has been paying attention the whole time. And then he'll make a, a wise crack uh, about it later. And you know, there, there is sort of like this um, you know, very quick sort of um, intelligence to him that is just very understated. Um, but he does sort of command the room without giving much away. And I think that was a, a real sort of terrific skill. And you read the, the final report that he did of the Royal Commission. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a 1,000 pages long, but it's probably one of the, you read it and there's this absolute clarity of thought. Um, there's wonderful references to um, you know, Dickens uh, in some places. There's humor involved. Um, you know, he uses metaphors like you know, branches being snapped off trees. Um, so, so it really is this sort of, this, this person who's described as a black letter lawyer, you know, he does everything by the book, he takes it very seriously. Um, but there is this great sort of, um, you know, cultural eminence that he has just sort of um, flowing out through his fingers when he writes, which I think was very interesting. And it, it was interesting that they chose him to do it because obviously, like, as, as I said, he was he, a very black letter lawyer. He was sort of no funny business. He'd worked around financial services for a long time. Um, he was sort of put on the, the high court uh, by Howard to sort of um, bring a bit more sense back to it after a number of controversial issues. So everyone thought it was going to be sort of very, no surprises, um, you know, very diligent. Um, but he sort of turned out to be a bit of a rock star in his own right. Um, very media shy, though. Uh, another rock star, I guess, <laughs> would have been uh, Rowena Orr. How did, how did you find her um, uh, skill? Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting, because it, it didn't take long for Rowena Orr to sort of go from um, you know, a, a well-known lawyer in the, in the Melbourne establishment to someone who was, you know, she was, she was on the front page of the Finn as Australia's favourite barrister by the end of it. Um, and I think it was round two uh, where she was just picking apart these executives and they had, they had had intense media training before they get on the stand. You know, they've got a, an army of workers and spin doctors trying to tell them how to answer questions, gaming them. And um, the, the executives would be on the stand, they'd be, they'd be avoiding the question, they'd be avoiding the question, um, or they'd be leading her down a wrong path. And every so often um, she'd just say, can I show you a document? And they'd pull it up on the screen, and what you'd see was just that the executive had been lying for the last two hours in the stand. And it was just this nice little bit of sort of punchy little theatre and a recurring sort of theme that really just said that, you know, no, she's here, she means business, um, and you can't really avoid her. She, she's very, she'd worked on a, on a, on a Royal Commission before, um, the Victorian family violence one, um, and she had been in and out of, of large cases throughout her career, but that sort of really made her. Um, and I, I think that there was, um, she, she deserves all the sort of like the applause that she gets for, for working through those cases. And it, it sort of culminated in, in the last round of hearings uh, where Ken Henry, the former Treasury Secretary, was on, on the stand. And he was the only member of National Australia Bank's team to um, turn down the media training. He thought he could handle it. Um, and he was well known in Treasury for, for being very sort of um, brash. Um, you know, he's, he's very intelligent. He doesn't suffer fools easily. Um, 
And when Rowena Orr was questioning him on the stand, um, he came off very poorly. Um, and I think there was, it was quite, I think it was very, it was a well-made choice to put Rowena in front of him um, to, ask, to have a, a young female lawyer asking questions of one of the most successful men in Australia uh, in a setting where they were looking specifically at misconduct and how senior people had handled it. It's interesting that you, you, you mentioned Ken Henry because um, he gave evidence over two days uh, by everybody's account, basically the first day, uh, he came across exceptionally well. Uh, he explained basically the nature of uh, the problems facing uh, major banking institutions without excusing them. Uh, but on the second day, he just simply went off the rails. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and my colleague made a good quip where you just, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy to tell the difference between an asset and a liability. Um, and it couldn't have been more uh, obvious to anyone who was in the room and watching the proceedings. At, um, you know, his time as chairman of the bank was up at that point, essentially. Um, and it didn't really click for them for, for quite a while after. Um, and there was a lot of sort of um, posturing in the back room to try and salvage these careers. You know, he's, he's, he was a treasury secretary, for God's sake. You know, um, he helped the country through the global financial crisis. And, you know, if it's just one day where he got up on, out of bed on the wrong side, that sort of puts the nail in the coffin of, of this career and his reputation. Um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting how this Royal Commission process can lead to a situation where someone who's grumpy on a witness stand can have their entire reputation put in the gutter. Um, and I, I think that's sort of really indicative of um, what, what the entire process was about. It was, it was about sort of revealing these people for either what they truly are or what the public wants to believe about how they act. Or how the story and how the narrative itself is created. One of the reasons why Henry got into such trouble uh, was when he was asked, well, was there not something more he could do? And he very famously said, well, I suppose we could have sacked the lot of them, right? Uh, uh, and his, 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 his great kind of failure in many ways was uh, that this was perceived as being disrespectful. Um, and disrespectful to uh, um, um, a woman, uh, disrespectful to an officer of the court, and disrespectful to the Royal Commission itself, and was indicative in many ways of how, um, I guess, the financial services industry itself, whilst it itself called for the Royal Commission, in actual fact thought it was simply part of the cost of doing business. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it's, it's the funny thing about royal commissions is that, one, you never know where they're going to go. Um, and two, just the, the nature of a royal commission is, is very strange. They're, they're not court um, proceedings. You know, you can't sort of, they can't put anyone in jail or, um, you know, make findings against them. They can recommend sort of, um, they can refer for further investigation to regulation or regulatory agencies. Um, but the, they're sort of set up for uh, political reasons, you know? It's, if, if there's a problem, the government wants to be seen like it is acting on it. When the public needs some sort of to, to know that you know, the government is working in their favour, they can launch one, you can investigate them, and generally they do very fantastic work. They have 
very great powers, more so than any sort of um, state or, or uh, police agency. Um, but they are unique in that they are created by politicians, um, most, or not mostly, but you know, often for political purposes. And in this case, um, the, 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 the government's majority in parliament was wafer thin, and they had their minor party threatening to launch their own commission of inquiry bill, which is a similar thing, but not controlled by the government of the day. And so in, in many ways, we really didn't need a royal commission, but in many other ways, the government just needed not to lose a single vote on the lower house, in the lower house of parliament. Um, and, you know, magically enough, the, the stars aligned for that. And so it all comes down to, to politics uh, in, in, in large measure. There was, a, I think, a great extract in your own newspaper from your, your book yesterday uh, in terms of the rationale for setting up this Royal Commission. But having listened to the evidence, having been there throughout, did anything emerge from the Royal Commission that surprised you? I think I, when I, when I, I've, I've been covering banking and financial services and regulation for, for a number of years, and I thought that I wouldn't be necessarily shocked by anything that had come out. Um, and I, I guess it's, it reflects poorly on the fact that I, I, I indeed was surprised at, at many, much of the stuff that did come out, you know, we, when we talk about uh, senior executives misleading the regulator um, after you know, uh, committing like a legal breach, um, you know, taking money from dead people. It's, it's a great headline. I'm, I'm not necessarily shocked by that because they'll take money wherever they can if they know it's there. Um, but all of that had been uh, disclosed in issue papers released by ASIC. All of that had been disclosed in uh, regular meetings before the Senate. Yep. Um, so the it was the the manner of the presentation and the humanization, I think, is really ultimately where the strength of the Royal Commission lay. Yeah, and it's, it's one of these interesting points. So in, in 2016 or 2015, um, a, a long time ago in, in terms of my memory, but um, ASIC put out this um, small little report that said, fees for no service, paper number one. Um, and it just said, here are five banks, you know, the four major banks and AMP, and we've discovered that there's been about $100 million or so, $200 million, uh, where these companies had charged fees where they had provided no service. And it was sort of like this dreary little document, a couple of pages in total and a table. Um, and I remember I, I wrote about it at the time, and the, the paper ran it on about page 23, 24, 25, down the bottom, not much space, no sort of screaming headline or anything. And the, the sort of the mechanics was, were never properly explained. Um, in that press release, and so we didn't think it was an issue. It just seemed like a systems error. You know, a computer had taken some money, um, and you know, then they're all going to refund it. But then, the the entire sort of royal commission, or, or most of the the larger scandals, all related to this one little ASIC investigation that started back in 2014. I think ANZ had found that it had charged some fees for no service, told the regulator, like, whoopsie, you know, we're, we'll, we'll fix this up. Um, and ASIC was like, oh, you know, we should check if other people are doing this. Um, and so they knocked on the front door of all the other major institutions, and lo and behold, 
they had also been taking money and not providing services in return for those fees. Um, now, when the Royal Commission rolls around, um, and it's the wealth management round, I think it's, it's round number two or three, and all the Royal Commission does is present the same, or the same basic investigation. Um, they get executives on the stand to answer how did this happen. Um, and it turns out that there was a lot more to the story that we just didn't hear from ASIC. And, um, you know, when, when AMP asked Clayton Nuts, the, the independent law firm, to go through this information, find out what went wrong, how do we rectify it, how do we make it not happen again, who's responsible for it, uh, AMP made Clayton Utes um, doctor that report, you know, two dozen times. And, you know, essentially they say it was just the draft report, we're just drafting it. But there were senior, senior executives and board members that were fiddling around with the names who were responsible for that. And it was something, it was something terrible, like $5 million. You know, something on, on, it sounds like a lot of money for an individual, but in a, a company with $120 billion mm. in management, $5 million in an accounting error. Mm. But the fact that they were trying to escape any sort of ad admission of guilt, um, the fact that they spent so long wringing their hands over $5 million, and the fact that they tried to weasel out of uh, having any culpability for that um, was just explored in sort of gratuitous detail on the stand. And when you have senior bankers sort of having to atone for these sins uh, on the stand, it just generates a lot more interest in the story, obviously. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was after that that, that Scott Morrison held a press conference and said that these are serious crimes, people can go to jail for them. And jail had never been raised as a, a serious um, idea before that for, for executives. You know, we're, we're almost in a, a you know, if, if you engage in insider trading, a lot of people go to jail now um, for that. But it's been a focus for ASIC to work through that, whereas the senior staff at these companies generally get off, um, or they don't have indemnity for, for, for many of these mm. um, issues. So it's, it's interesting that the Royal Commission was centred around this one little press release uh, that came out without much fanfare, but then spending three months just talking about it and going through it created this whole thing. Mm. And, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the compensation bills escalated to about $2 billion now for mm. just for that one fees for no service issue and a couple of major institutions. Um, but, but, yeah. uh, but, but I guess a, a lot of the issues that have been raised in uh, the, uh, the, the Royal Commission, um, they all have been remediated, right? Uh, it's taken a long time. Uh, it's quite clear that basically APRA and ASIC were treated with complete disrespect and contempt, basically by, um, by the banks throughout this process on the basis of the evidence provided to the Royal Commission by APRA and ASIC, and then APRA and ASIC end up getting the blame. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's funny, and when we talk about the Royal Commission, and, and it's probably why I wrote the book, um, was the business world is incredibly complex. You know, I, I, I write about it day in and day out, um, and it's still, uh, you know, I still don't understand it. You know, I, I'm terrible with my own superannuation. I don't know where it is, who's got it, and what they're doing with it. Um, but this is the, the reason. We're, we're, the, the regulators were doing their job 
mostly. Um, they weren't taking as many people to court as they should have, um, and they weren't funded to the to the same or to the proper extent that they should have been to enable them to either be proactive um, or you know be reactive and you know launch enforcement. And there was a lot of issues with how the law is structured that would allow people um, to sort of engage in these sort of different ways that um, you know. We wouldn't even need a regulator if there was just a law and they complied with it, or you know, a properly designed law and they could comply with it. Um, so, it's very it, by the by the end of the, the Royal Commission, you know that Commissioner Hain thinks that the watchdogs uh, have really failed in this. You know, the, the problems were the banks themselves. You know, the, the crime committers, but the the police on the beat were asleep at the wheel. Um, and it's funny because the Royal Commission assembled all of the information that it had through the regulators, you know, they, they were taking a lot of the information out and even through the process, um, you know, ASIC was kicking them more stories as they went along, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, here's another one, we found it, um, we're going to do something soon, but, you know, the Royal Commission should know that we're doing this. Um, and the problem, when I, when I talk about the complexity of the, the business world and the regulators, one of the reasons why people lose faith in, you know, ASIC, everyone calls it, you know, a toothless tiger, it's, it's asleep at the wheel, but they haven't been out there explaining what they're doing, how, how they are um, blocked from doing what they want, and where the laws that Canberra is passing and developing have, are constraining them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think it, the, the Royal Commission was very important in actually sharing um, the mechanics of how these things were happening. And it's just, it's, it's a real sort of brutal irony that it blew back onto ASIC um, that, you know, they were held up as, you know, partly responsible for what went on. Mm -hmm. But then, on the other hand, uh, the government's just given them 400 more million dollars, which they're very happy about, and whether it's enough or not is up for debate. Well, but, um, industry has given them the 400 million. Yes, they get to claim it back through industry, so the taxpayers, in a roundabout way, not paying. But um, it, I think he needed to make the point where he had to agree with the public and say that, like, yes, there is a problem here. ASIC has been asleep on the wheel. Um, they don't have the money that they need. And how else do you, you know, the treasurer pulls the purse strings pretty tight at the best of times, you know, and to get $400 million out of the government at a time when they're trying to produce a wafer-thin surplus um, is quite a task indeed. So um, I, I think he did have to sort of shame them. Well, I, I, I think that's right, uh, and I, I guess the, the, the elephant in the room, however, um, certainly the elephant in the room uh, within the Royal Commission and in its findings, is actually the responsibility of Canberra. Yeah, well, I, I, like, like I, I, say, I say in the book that um, the, the first line of defence against misconduct is good public policy. Um, the regulators should be, you know, fourth down the list. Um, if you design the laws right, um, then pe pe obviously number two would be having people comply with those laws, but the design of the laws is very important. And we saw this um, happen in 2013. When we, when we try and re-regulate the financial system, everyone's got fingers in the pie. Um, Canberra is just a, a mass with you know, lobby group upon lobby group twisting the elbows of our elected representatives to try and get them to uh, water down laws. Um, in 2013, Labor came up with this new regime called the Future of Financial Advice. Um, sounds really um, boring, but it was groundbreaking in how un sort of, um, it didn't aspire to greatness. It said that financial advisors should act in the best interest of their clients. 
And that's sort of the, where the regime starts from. And there was a couple of other things about you know, getting rid of bad products and you know, making, um, you know, bringing down fees and things like that. Um, but as that went on, the government, the, the incoming government, when, when Abbott came in, they just sought to water it down, um, you know, repeal a lot of it. And we're, we're really lucky that we had the Motley crew in the Senate um, crossbench who blocked it um, after a long campaign by the financial industry. And I remember speaking to people like um, David Whiteley, who was uh, the, the sort of the face of the, the union employer-backed industry fund sector. Um, and he was getting death threats because he was trying to take this grandfather trailing commission payments away from financial advisors who weren't doing anything with it. And the Financial Services Council, which represents the wealth management industry, they would phone up Treasury uh, and say like, oh, we've got, a, we've got a proposed amendment to this legislation. Um, I'll email it to you. And then you know, a Treasury worker would get a phone call two hours later from the same person saying, have you updated the legislation with that in it? And they'd be like, oh, well, it's, it's, we're Treasury. We write it. But it's the government who designs the laws. Mm. Um, and so the, the level of sort of um, you know, actual lobbying doesn't just stop at you know, having a cup of tea at Parliament House with an MP. It's they, they call everyone who they can. They, they twist everyone's elbow they can find. Um, and it just so happened that the way that Canberra had structured a lot of these laws that were sort of um, guiding the framework for the Royal Commission's investigations had been um, really poorly designed in the end. You know, when we talk about trailing commissions that I just mentioned before. Um, or well designed, depending on whose interests you're talking well, about. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, Grandfathered trailing commissions, it's, it's a financial advisor takes, you know, say $2,000 yeah. every year off a product. Um, you don't know about it, or you, you might have signed some papers uh, agreeing to it, um, but every year they get a, a, a cut of your returns um, for doing essentially nothing. Uh, it, is, it is literally money for nothing. And the future of financial advice said, no more of those, we're going to ban them from here on out. But for those advisors who have them already, you, we're going to grandfather them. And they just thought that they would wither on the vine and go away. And then lo and behold, five years later, there were portfolios full of financial advice customers being traded around the industry by financial advisors. Um, you know, they were selling them onto investors. You, you could invest in grandfather trailing commission books and expect a little return. Um, and it, it just didn't die. It flourished. Um, and the problem now is that we're trying to ban those grandfathered commissions, and the industry is still fighting back against it. And as we've seen, the, the Royal Commission report came out two months ago, and the government's already walked back from three or four uh, commitments. Um, so I guess expect more. But um, so too is Labour. On one, and then probably another or two. You know, but yeah, once they're in government, things will change. Um, but it's very hard because the financial industry is so big. It's it's one. One in every ten dollars that we spend goes through the financial services industry. Yep. Um, with that amount of money and that amount of influence, uh, the major parties are both beholden to the sector which they try and regulate. Um, so they're in a very—it shouldn't be a tricky position, but they consider themselves in a tricky position, um, and, it, yep. and it, we all are on the losing end of that. I guess uh, if you think of the the rise of populism around the world, uh, it it. Irrespective of where it's happening, uh, each 
major leader uh, requires a slogan, if you will. So if you think of President Trump, you think uh, make America great, right? You think of the success of Brexit or the disaster of Brexit, depending on your perspective. Uh, it is take back control. If you think of Hain, the report really can be distilled down to three words, because they could. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And we Australians hate their banks, um, but they are you uniquely sort of apathetic in their dealing with it. You know, you, you, we're more likely to change spouses than we are to change our banks. Um, that's a fact, though. <laughs> um, and it sort of creates this. Uh, oh, and I should mention superannuation here as well. They get. 10% of our wages, um, and we don't think about it until we're in our 50s, mostly, if we're lucky. Um, some people engage early on, but you never see that money. You might get a statement every now and then. I, I, get, I, I can't remember how many super funds I've had and how many letters have gone around to different share houses that I've been living in at the time. Um, but when an industry has amassed $2.5 trillion, of our money that we don't know what they're doing with. Um, there is nothing, there is no incentive for those employers other than the kindness of their own heart for, to, to, to look after your money yeah. in a way that would uh, be befitting of it. Um, so because we're not engaged in the system as much as we should be, it'll, it has just allowed the flourishing of rorts on a systemic scale. Um, executives can go sort of willy-nilly with any sort of money that they find because the regulators were also only working behind closed doors and really not telling everyone else what they were doing. But um, there is a situation where there was no incentive and no punishment for behaving poorly. Mm. And, you know, I, I think the responsibility comes on us to sort of understand it more and learn about it. And I was, I was trying to do that in the book was, you know, I thought this was a very important thing. If mm. people actually understand, then there will be more engagement with it and the culture wouldn't be able to flourish like yeah. that. Uh, no, I, I think in that sense, the book works um, exceptionally well and I, I very much recommend it to you. Um, <laughs> Thank uh, you. And, and, and because, precisely because it is very clear uh, and it is easy to understand, but it's also essential to understand. Um, and, you know, we always get basically the politics we deserve, right? You know, so if we do not engage, then basically w this is what is going to happen. I think one of the successful things uh, that Hian has done is to, to reintegrate, if you will, law and morality. And he does so by setting out a normative framework, uh, which is informed by six key principles. Uh, so let me just read those to you and, and we get Michael to comment on them. I mean, but in essence, he is asking of the financial services industry to obey the law, to not mislead or deceive, to act fairly, to provide services that are fit for purpose, to deliver services with reasonable care and skill, and when acting for another, act in the best interest of that other. I mean, it's not rocket science. 
No, it's not. And, you know, it, it's like, why are these people getting paid $20 million a year to sort of do that? You know, that's a, you know I, could, I could encourage a five-year-old to, you know, comply with those sort of, you know, values and ethics mm. um, and, you know, give them two hours. They might forget <laughs> about them. But, uh, you know, for, for a short amount of time, they'll, they'll be good. Um, and this is, this is sort of the whole problem. When we talk about shaping public policy in a way that works for us, um, we also have to remember that um, at the heart of all this is, is a culture that is rotten. Um, and you can't really legislate to improve culture. If, if you have these guiding principles, the things that you just read out, um, it sounds very simple. You know, obviously, it should just be, um, you know, people should just comply with it because that is what is right. Um, but we live in a world, or we have a business sector that uh, is amoral. Mm. Their, their, their guiding principle is to uh, earn more money for their shareholders. Um, and the way that they are paid aligns them with that. The more profit that they have, the more money they can earn. Um, and, you know, the question that they never ask themselves is, why do I need more money? But um, that's, uh, that's why they're attracted to the business in the first place. But when we talk about shaping the laws to, to help people, to guide people into compliance with these values, it's a very tricky situation. And Hayne was at pains to sort of have a conversation about governance and culture. Um, and it's a very sort of tricky area because you can't pass a law saying, um, you know, you must act morally, you know? Um, obviously, we have laws that say you can't deceive people, you can't mislead them. But um, when we talk about complying with the spirit of those laws, um, it's a cultural thing. Because when you act, when you have bankers that, uh, you know, uh, they have armies of lawyers behind them. Um, they're going to take any sort of law and interpret it to give them the biggest door they can to walk through it. Mm. Um, and when we talk about um, culture, it comes from the top, it's set from the top, but it needs the right people there to sort of encourage the rest of the business to go along with it. Mm. And so that's probably one of the, the most difficult things about the Royal Commission and the proposals and, you know, there's 76 proposals that require, you know, some sort of legal change or some sort of mm. definitional change in different codes and laws and um, industry, uh, you know, governance, mm. ethics, things like that. But unless you create a culture that wants to comply not just with the, the letter of those laws but the spirit of them as well, then the whole exercise is sort of pointless um, yeah. in the end. Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, show me a, a, a rule and I'll find you a lawyer to transact around it uh, whilst remaining technically in compliance with it. Uh, uh, the second approach that is used um, within the business world is an approach which privileges uh, principles, right? And as a former head of the uh, Financial Services Authority, the equivalent of ASIC in the UK put it, he was a firm believer in principles-based regulation, but it doesn't work with people who don't have any principles. Uh, and that then leads you to the third component, which is social norms. What are the actual social norms within industry itself? And I want to take you, Michael, to the final set of public hearings when basically the senior executives were actually brought face to face 
with all of the evidence that has been brought out, all of the lying, all of the misinformation, all of the dissembling, basically. And Hain was looking, actively looking for uh, what positive change could potentially be introduced. And he found that nobody was coming up with any solutions at all. So when you look at that final set of hearings, and let's move beyond Ken Henry to, 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 to the others, um, I mean, did you get a sense that the finance industry recognizes the existential nature of the crisis that they actually face? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, obviously there were some and, uh, who did and others who did not. Um, and you can, you can really tell how different people approached the actual process um, or knew what it was about. And uh, I won't go to Ken Henry, but I'll go to his colleague, uh, Andrew Thorburn, who was the chief executive of National Australia Bank, who's just recently left um, or, you know, uh, encouraged out of the business. Um, and he was on the stand and he was in the fight of his life. Um, they had been sort of royally screwed by this Royal Commission. Um, they'd come out looking like one of the, the worst organisations of the bunch. Um, and he was on the stand and he only wanted to talk about what NAB's purpose and vision were. Um, and it was like, no, no, Andrew, we're, we're here to talk about the crimes you've committed and, uh, you know, why the customers are still waiting for their refunds. Um, but he wanted to talk about purpose and vision. And so, was Andrew, okay, so what, what, is, what, is purpose, what is NAB's purpose and vision? And uh, he was like, well, the purpose is for 50 years and the vision is for five years. Um, and we've done a lot of work on our purpose and vision. We've read a lot of books about NAB's history, where it's going. Um, our, our purpose is something to be, you know, um, backing the bold of Australia, and our vision is to be, you know, the the best bank, the bis business bank in Australia. And he kept on talking about the difference between these two very sort of similar statements and why it was important that he was telling a Royal Commission who was short on time this sort of waffle. Um, and I remember the, the Michael Hodge QC, who was who was um, examining him, just said. I'm, I'm, don't, get, don't get me wrong here, but I thought the purpose of NAB was to be a bank and that it was meant to lend to customers and take deposits. And he said, yes, 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 but, um, you know, but, 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 but there's more than that. And you know, here's our purpose and vision. And it's just, when you contrast that with someone like um, the head of ANZ, who's Shane Elliott, who's this Kiwi guy, mm -hmm. lovely, he cottoned on so early to the fact that the political sentiment in the public and the outrage that they were experiencing could really take the sector into places where it didn't want to go. And so he's always been at pains to sort of um, get out on the front foot, tell everyone what they're doing. Um, they, they've sort of done numerous cultural reviews of their organisation to try and you know, shore it up, find where the problems are, and rectify them. And when you look at his reaction to just sort of, um, you know, he, he hasn't tried to push back against this process at all. He, he realises that the, the train's already left the station, there's no point stopping it. Um, and that's what the Royal Commission is for. I, I remember I was talking to um, a, you know, a senior regulator recently who's now being asked by the energy companies and the energy regulator 
what do we do in this situation? If, there's, if they call the Royal Commission to the energy market in Australia, how do we handle this? You know, like what, what, should we, what should we be doing now to try and avoid it? And it's just, he said to them, it's just, you're, a Royal Commission means that the situation has already got so bad that there is no other way to soothe public opinion than to just be berated for a year at the hands of these lawyers. Um, and either you get that early or you don't. And in the case of some of these banks, like NAB, um, they did not get it until well after the fact when Ken Henry and Thorburn both had to leave in sort of um, less than ideal circumstances for them. So I, I guess the first lesson if you have to go to a royal commission is apologize. Mm. That kind of helps to begin with. We have roving mics here, so if anybody would like to, to join in the conversation, basically if you wait until uh, the mic gets to you, so we've got this lady here. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, hi, Michael. Um, I wanted to ask, um, well, it's obvious nothing substantial really was done out as a result of the Royal Commission, as much as Kenneth Haynes, like he had shackles that were put on him with the terms of reference, which literally, you know, meant don't look at the macroprudential policies. So in other words, you can't change anything that the banks are really doing, we'll just look at the superficial stuff. And that's what he did. Um, you could see he was frustrated in that. Treasury had a hand in helping him, or in writing his actual final report. He had input into that. What I wanted to ask you, are you aware of a bank bill, a bi or a bill that has been written, that has been uh, lodged with the Senate? It's called the Banking System Reform Separation of Banks Bill 2019. Hmm. What, what do you know about that? Because that is a bill that in very simple um, legislation will bring the banks under control. It would outlaw them from being, you know, it would make them be separate. Either they've got to be a commercial bank, they do the deposits, they do the loans, they look after the day-to-day -day business, or they're an investment bank and they can't be both. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting, and, and thank you for the question. Um, I think that bill was um, private member's bill from Bob Catter, um, the sort of the regional MP, um, and it's it's a great it's it's sort of modelled on the Glass-Steagall Act um, in the US, and and so um, that sort of splits the divisions between the banks between um, you know the 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 boring sort of um, deposits and lending uh, and the sort of the casino side of the bank um, and. It's been there for, for quite a while, and Hain sort of, the, the terms of reference were shaped in a way that he could only make recommendations about things that sort of wouldn't, um, he had to have the economic impact of his recommendations in mind um, when he was finally handling down his report. Um, the, the contention around splitting up these businesses um, was there from day dot. Um, it still is. It's still going to hang around for quite a while. Um, the, the banks in Australia are, are far too large. Um, just four organisations control 80% of, of the system. Um, there's a lot of sort of crossover in products. It's, the vertical integration is, is quite... Um, uh, there's a lot of cross-selling that goes mm. on, I guess. Um, and in the end, although a, lo a lot of people wanted it, um, there was no recommendation to split up 
these organisations. You know, if you have a life insurance business, you, you can't also have a superannuation fund, that sort of thing. Yeah. But there was a recommendation that the, the competition watchdog should do five yearly reviews of vertical integration in the system. Um, and Labor has... The difference between the coalition and Labor on that one at the moment is that Labor is very interested in it um, and in making that, making sure that the ACCC is, is well sort of resourced to con conduct those and to actually look into it properly. So I don't think that it's necessarily the fact that the banks will just go on forever keeping all these various divisions in the casino arm. In fact, many of them are getting out of those businesses of their own volition. Um, sometimes having a wealth management arm tied to your boring bank has just created more headaches than it's worth. Um, and I think over time, if we get the culture right, then they won't want, they will, they will do that of their own volition. They won't be cross-selling, they won't be cross-subsidising these sort of yeah. safe arms with their casino arms. And without having to have too much of a fundamental intervention into the market, which could just never get through then. Like, so this bill um, that's before Parliament, um, there's just not much chance of, of it getting cross-party support. Um, it, it's unlikely to ever get the support of the, the coalition, um, and Labor would probably be too scared to ever do anything about that. So I think there are ways to get to achieve the outcomes of that bill, but the problem with Australia is that we have a very sort of... Um, charged political environment, yeah. and it's also not very courageous a lot of the time. So there are ways to get there, but um, did you want to say anything? No, I mean, I, 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 the, the, the only point that I would uh, add to that is that, yes, it, it, is, it is the case that, um, that Hain uh, did not recommend basically uh, uh, splitting off basically the wealth management arms, but it is the fact that, that basically most of the major banks have already done so. Um, the main problem with the Australian banks in many ways is not with their investment banking arm. Uh, it's still quite small. These are commercial and retail banks rather than necessarily investment banks. Uh, it wasn't a big player in the GFC because the international banks were basically dealing with, 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 with those, those areas. But the one thing I would say uh, is ASIC has been much more aggressive and much more effective in the wholesale market than it has been in the retail market. So Australia is the only country in the world in which issues related to the global financial crisis have actually been litigated to a judicial conclusion. So if you think of collateralized debt obligations, these are complex financial instruments that were sold to local consuls. If you think of the conflicted role played by the rating agencies, or indeed if you think of the manipulation of the local financial benchmark, the bank bill swap rate, which is equivalent of the London interbank offered rate. In all of those cases, they have been litigated to a judicial conclusion, and therefore there is precedential value. Um, so a lot more work has done has happened within the wholesale market, within casino capitalism, than within boring banks. But the boring banks have themselves recognised that wealth management is actually not a profitable business for them to be in. Yes. Michael, I've got to say up front, this is a good sort of inquiry, but it would have been better too if it had been held as part of the Royal Commission with lots of people. They held, uh, I think it was 10,323 
submissions made, massive amounts of documentation. What was the difference in your mind as a business reporter between what was coming through as documentation and the oral evidence, the anecdotes? Because one of the things that stood out for me in this inquiry was that, uh, and I'll just read this bit back, it was really around their financial advice to consumers, including the treatment of consumers, compliance with the law, and community standards and expectations. Now, it's that community standards and expectations bit that caused the outrage. Mm. Uh, do you have any view on what could have been done slightly differently? Because Justice Hayne obviously understood what community expectations were, and the banks didn't. Mm. Yeah, it's a toughie because um, community expectations change over time as well. Um, when we think about how little trust there is with the banks, um, uh, on, on, on one hand, um, Australia hates its banks. We, we're a bank-bashing nation. Um, we don't trust uh, executives in their profession. Um, on the other hand, um, Australians have a really oddly high trust in their banking system. Um, we don't have runs on our banks. Um, everyone here, I presume, uh, keeps their money in a company that they're pretty happy with. Um, their sentiment towards their own lender is quite high by international standards. Um, so it's it's what what Hain I thought did well was pick out of those ten thousand submissions, pick the ones that really were going to get the most interest in sort of a from a public point of view, um, great headlines. And then also that they would be instructive about um, telling us something about the structural flaws or the sort of the, the governance arrangements that led to this particular case forming. Um, and with 10,000 documents, they, they, had, you know, it's, they had a lot to choose from. Um, and they chose very, very good ones, I thought. Um, now, one of the complaints was that they don't they didn't go through them all. They didn't prosecute every sort of argument. But I think, with a one-year sort of time frame, um, to sort out the major problems, um, the major structural flaws uh, in in the system, I think that they chose their the battles that they could win quite easily. Um, of course, there's always going to be more to do. Like just before, we're talking about macro macro prudential policy. Um, there's that's that's going to open up a whole different can of worms and it might derail the conversation that we're having about just making measurable tweaks to the system that would be beneficial in the long run rather than wholesale revolution and dismantling the system as it is. So I thought that eventually, like what eventually did take place and, and the recommend, recommendations there um, were measured enough to have the um, political sort of understanding that these were changes to the system that would be good, bang for your buck, and would have a high likelihood of transpiring into law. So mm. I, I think there's, there, there is quite a, a lesson to be learned in not biting off too much more than you can chew and noticing that the parliamentary system is fraught with, with trying to get any sort of change through, particularly when dealing with such a powerful industry. I think it's also the case, isn't it, that uh, he and ignored some of the limitations in his in, in his mandate. He was exceptionally critical of APRA. Um, APRA, of course, did not do well out of the last Royal Commission into the financial services industry in which uh, Justice, uh, Justice Neville Owen suggested that he would have 
uh, advocated its disbandment, except for the fact that it had just been set up. And so we thought maybe they should get another go, whether that was justified or not, is a moot point. Uh, we have another question here. Um, yes. Yeah, I come from the United States, and they did some legislation, the Dodd-Frank bill, which is thousands of pages long. and. Um, uh, government has kept picking away and picking away to that, so if there was any sort of um, way that they could <clears throat> do something to the banks, they did very little. These banks are even bigger than before. There's even a worse problem, actually, globally. Australia seems to be one of the worst countries this way in terms of its four big banks and the influence that they have. And uh, just as an American who's living here, I, <laughs> I kind of see some similarities, and I, I just see Australia following what America does, and I think it's really not a good thing to do. Um, and I'm afraid that there's, they're going to wait until there's a big crash, which is happening, I think, at, right at this present time. And uh, it's too bad, but it seems like I'm a doctor, and that's what people do, too. They have to get sick or something before they change their lifestyle. Yeah, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff rather than the fence at the top. Um, and <laughs> You, you are the, the problem that we have in Australia is, is very small country compared to the U.S. Obviously, um, we're a nation of oligopolies and duopolies. Really, you know, we think about the supermarket. We've got two um, airlines, two of them, banks, four, um, energy retailers, three. Um, we're really used to not having much choice, and I'm not even sure that if you offered us choice, we would take it up. Um, a big problem it has been the regulators passing through these sort of um, mergers that shouldn't have ever taken place. But now that we have them, we're sort of stuck with them. And the only reason, reasonably, the only chance that we have to reasonably change that is slowly over time reducing the power of these companies by forcing them to compete with one another um, for products that they can't really gouge anymore. And a lot of it is about consumers being more engaged and picking the smaller ones, choosing different companies, other than ones, going to local retailers, things like that. Um, so I don't think in this country we can expect the regulators to, to do everything when their track record has been so poor. Um, when we think about um, what to do in this situation, I, I, I keep coming back to this, but it is, it is more about encouraging the right sort of culture to take precedent here. Um, and it's about public policy shaping the right incentives to allow proper competition and um, you know, dismantling oligopolies. Um, it's hard, but to, to get executives to lessen their market power is a big ask. But it, if they have the right culture and they actually want to compete um, to offer the lowest prices to customers, then they will do that. They just need a bit of a push in the right direction, I guess. Okay, do we have any? Yes, at the back. Thank you. Uh, look, yes, it is an incredible self-interest in excess and corruption that we've seen with the banks. I know they're so, so powerful, as you've been talking about, but it would be an incredible warning sign if there was actually some court cases and some of these CEOs and high-ranking execs went up on charges. Is, is there any chance of that? I mean, why are these white-collar criminals getting off scot-free? That's how the ordinary person sees it. 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, so there, I think um, ASIC has about 50 cases that are sort of either directly referred to them by Ken Hain um, or tangentially related, uh, and they're working through them at the moment. Um, they're currently putting together a case against AMP, um, and I would imagine that there's a couple of uh, senior executive names in there about misleading the regulator and lying and then not giving money back. Um, there's one that was launched halfway through the Royal Commission against the National Australia Bank, um, specifically about um, fees for no service. Um, APRA, the Prudential Regulator, launched one against um, another company called IOOF, um, which should have been prosecuted probably a long time ago. Um, but it was only sort of the the sort of the, the scrutiny of the Royal Commission that really kicked things into gear. Um, or the scrutiny of APRA. Or the scrutiny of APRA, <laughs> you know, uh, because they, they came away from the, the whole process looking very sort of um, uh, not good, I guess, you know, for, for lack of a synonym. Um, but yeah, so I, the corporate regulator has now said that it's going to take a if not, why not approach to litigation. And it's sort of a very fundamental change to how things go there because the former head of uh, ASIC, Greg Medcraft, came to the job thinking that uh, working with companies, um, resolving things on a, on a manageable basis would be enough to sort of encourage them to head in the right direction. Um, and it just showed, it, it, it didn't work out like that. If you gave them an inch, they would take a mile. Um, ASIC recently had its, had its boss change to a guy called James Shipton who's come from Harvard and Hong Kong where he was a securities regulator. Um, and he's very intent on making sure it's known that you can go to jail if you do commit breaches. Um, one of the biggest problems, though, is, uh, one, a lack of funding for the regulator to do these. Um, the fact that the, the legal structure wasn't set up. We, don't have, we didn't have a federal criminal court for corporate crime. It was, um, it was up to the states um, to do that. And then, also, it's, just, it's really hard to sort of take dodgy financial pl planners to court because of defamation laws um, and, and just to make them exit the industry. Um, and what's more, there's just so much money lying around in the banks to sort of engage in legal trench warfare against these sorts of accusations. So it's, it'll be a hard slog, but they're definitely making it known that they want to put more people in jail. Um, and I, I think that can only be a good thing. Yeah, I, I think just leading on from that, um Regulators are constrained by their mandate, right? And um, uh, ASIC's role is to enforce the law, not set the law. Um, and it has to work within the penalties basically provided. And if the penalties, basically financial or custodial, basically are so low that they're written off as simply part of the cost of doing business, then, then ultimately banks will actually take the risk, right? So uh, Westpac basically took the risk of a case taken by ASIC in the federal court on the manipulation of the, uh, the bank bill swap rate, was found to have attempted to manipulate the marketplace, was fined three million, so it was one million per infraction, uh, which was 
substantially less than the 25 million that basically the other banks basically individually paired in an enforceable undertaking, right? So the penalties were so low. So part of the problem for public expectation moving forward is you can't utilize the new legislation and the new penalties for old conduct, right? Um, you can only take a case on the basis of the law as it stood at the time of the actual infraction. The regulator, secondly, has to act as a model litigant. In other words, it has to have an expectation that it has a more than a reasonable chance of winning whether that be on a civil case, which would be on the balance of probabilities, or beyond reasonable doubt in a criminal case in which you are actually going to bring somebody to or put somebody into jail, not only has ASIC as an investigatory agency got to actually make that judgment, it's got to convince the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions that in actual fact it can win that case. So there's a double bar that actually has to be reached. So public expectation that anybody is going to go to jail anytime soon, be prepared to be disappointed, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, and, but we should mention as well that the government recently changed the law to increase penalties against companies um, to a small extent. You know, yeah. Civil breach is $10 million, I think. Um, but it's a big increase on what it was before. But this idea that you can engage in anything and factor wrongdoing into the cost of doing business has been a real thing. When we talk about the BBSW rate rigging court case before, $3 million fine, the, the head trader who was engaging in that behaviour for Westpac took home you know, $30 million, so 10 times the fine. Mm. So it's, it's a real problem that the money swashing, swashing around these organisations can just enable them to really treat the law as and take it to its, its sort of um, most logical endpoint and still produce a $10 billion profit every year. You know. Well, I think with that, uh, I, I think there's an awful lot uh, of work for us to do, a lot of lobbying that we as individuals should give to our politicians who, funny enough, uh, with the election just called or about to be called, are going to be in a listening mode for change uh, for a short period of time. Um, Michael, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you for writing such a very clear book uh, uh, and uh, in, enjoy some much needed time off and do sort out your superannuation. <laughs> yeah, right. thank you for coming, everyone. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers' Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.